So there's a story about a family that goes out to eat one night dinner, and it's two parents and their child, their son. And the waitress asks, child, what, what would you like to eat, hun? What would you like to eat, hun? I would like a hot dog, fries, and a Coke. And one of the parents said, no. He'll have meatloaf, mashed potatoes, and milk. And the waitress, without skipping a beat, turns back to the kid and said, okay, so you'll have hot dog, fries, and a Coke. <laughs> and walks away. And the parents, forget that, the parents aren't about the story. This is not about them. The kid, their son, beams and says, she thinks I'm real. She thinks I'm real. I think that's all what we are looking for. To have someone recognize our realness. To have someone recognize who we are. And to see into that, sometimes in spite of what the world tells us we ought to be, or what we should be, or the expectations laid upon us. This power of seeing what's real, seeing each other, seeing ourselves. When you study resilience, as I do, this comes up again and again and again. That the core aspect of resilience, of bouncing back, of facing life's difficult times and being able to find ourselves still connected and to experience life as still meaningful, it has to do with these connections. Not just the superficial, especially not the superficial connections, but with the meaningful ones. The people who we can feel after we've interacted with them, she, him, they think I'm real. Because this life is so often difficult, we need soft places and especially soft relationships in which we can land and feel our realness, especially when we might forget it, especially we want to put on a mask, especially we want to live inside of the false expectations. Some of you know um, Beyonce's Lemonade. Have you listened to it or seen the visual album? There's a whole thing called a visual album now. And if you don't know what that is, Using five minutes here in my message today to explain it to you is a complete waste of time. So just take my word for it. There's a thing called a visual album. And the whole story of Beyonce's Lemonade is from that kind of archetypal image of resilience. Life gives you lemons. You make lemonade out of it. And the backstory of the album and the recording is, is it about her own uh, infidelity in her marriage? Did Jay-Z cheat on her? And again, wasting time on that this morning. The Internet's for that, okay? Go there if you want more of the backstory. And really what the album traces is this journey through grief and loss and eventually forgiveness, reconciliation, and a new start. Toward the very end of the album, of the recording, one of their grandmothers, I think it's Jay-Z's grandmother, is seen speaking at her 90th birthday party. And she says that line about lemons and lemonades. And then she says something even more. She says that nothing real can be threatened. Nothing real can be threatened. 
Now, I want to listen to just about everything someone who has made it to 90 tells me. And I especially want to listen to this. I think the meaning behind what she said is that it's real, it can't be threatened, because if it's real and we are real, we can be loved. You know, a couple of days here before Valentine's Day in which it's really easy to focus just on the romantic meaning of that word. And that's fine. If that's a part of your life, it's wonderful. It's a part of my life. And still to go deeper into the heart of what love really is. Sometimes I got to tell you the romantic images of love really get in the way of deeper love within our romantic lives and beyond them. Uh, sometimes couples will come to me for premarital counseling. Uh, before I do their wedding, and especially if they're a young couple, no, no, no uh, critique here if you're a young couple. Uh, but sometimes they'll say something. I'll ask a question. Tell me what it's like when, when you fight. And this is a totally trick question because very often I know the answer I'm going to get. Oh, we don't fight. <laughs> and they'll like kind of get a little puffed up, and they'll feel. I'm like, you're not passing the test here with that with that answer. Uh, there's a guy named John Gottman who studies uh, couples, like thousands of them over the years, and his words, not mine. He, he has two classifications, uh, masters and disasters. <laughs> the masters fight just as often as the disasters do. It's how they fight. Do they see each other as real? Do they belittle each other? Do they turn toward one another? That's what makes the difference. That's the capacity to show up in our intimate relationships and also beyond them. It's the same lesson in all part of life. What makes for healthy relationships? It's kindness. It's empathy. It's showing up. It's compassion. It's revealing something about ourselves that, you know, we might want to hide because it feels tender or not sure we're safe. But stepping forward with that makes all the difference. In this uh, new political reality of uh, alternative facts and post-truth world and all this, uh, I decided that um, I would go back and I'd read George Orwell's 1984. That is, it's so much more depressing than when I read it when I was like 16 or 17 or 18. I mean, Orwell was a master at creating this world. Most of what I remembered of kind of this dystopian, negative, violent a uh, bleak future in Oceania. But here's what really got me this time and was getting me as I'm working my way through the novel. How incredibly lonely it is. Everyone is so terrified because there is no such thing as basic facts or a kind of truth that we can find our way through together. Because, in fact, to speak of what is honestly happening can get you killed. And so it's a loveless and a lonely place. The very opposite of what Jay-Z's grandmother was saying, that if we're real, there is no threat. This past week, I heard an um, interview with um, one of the survivors of the University of Texas at Austin uh, shooting, you know, that kind of first mass shooting Sadly, far from the last. And for 50 years, until someone started to make a documentary about that day back in, I think it was 1966. I want to say 50th anniversary coming up. My wife, who's a journalist, will correct me after, after this. Okay. 
a while ago, almost 50 years ago. And for years, they wouldn't build a memorial to the dead and for the wounded on the campus. And in this interview with one of the survivors of this shooting, she said, I was so sad because all of us who are survivors, we, we had no one to talk to about it. That was the meaning of the memorial finally being placed there on campus. What she's saying is she wanted someone to be real with. I think we are all looking for someone to be real with. I don't think we would have showed up this morning unless we are looking for someone and someones to be real with. This is the heart so often overlooked in the second word of this two-word phrase I'm going to use, spiritual community. So many of us, including myself, have described ourselves as spiritual but not religious. That's like a whole designation, right? How you can, like, you can, you can answer like Pew Research with the, with the answer, I'm spiritual but I'm not religious. That's not that radical a thing anymore. <laughs> and I'm not saying be religious. I understand that's kind of a toxic word for many of us. I get that. So I think the key answer there is not spiritual but not religious. It's spiritual and connected. Spiritual and connected in community. Because so many of our lives are atomized, so many of our lives are separated from each other. And the truth is we really miss something if we try the depth of this spiritual journey without connection with others in real ways. This is one of the dialogues that I love most uh, between Buddha and Ananda. Now, uh, for those of you who don't know who Buddha, well, you probably know who Buddha was. You might not know who Ananda was. Uh, think of their relationship as the same relationship as between Jesus and Peter. Like Ananda was Buddha's right-hand disciple, if you will. And um, much like the disciples in the gospel accounts, uh, the people who followed Buddha around very often totally miss the nature of his teachings. And in this one dialogue between Ananda and Buddha, Ananda says, uh, my teacher, this is half of the holy life. Admirable friends, admirable companions. This is half of the holy life. And the Buddha says, no, Ananda, no, you are wrong. The whole of the holy life are admirable friends and admirable companions. We can't do this on our own. So the song was all about we cannot do this on our own. We might think we can. If you found out a way to do it, if you're truly a hermit, well, I'd say let's talk, but you're a hermit, so we're not talking. <laughs> this is the meaning of community. We speak of Wellsprings here as believing and affirming this capacity for chrysalis living. Of moving through the changes in our lives in meaningful ways, paying attention ways, knowing that to be in a chrysalis is a challenging place. I mean, we're between one state of being and another. And that's why friends and community are so essential when we're moving between one state of identity and something we don't know yet. And here's where, by the way, we as human beings have it all over the um, caterpillar becoming the butterfly in the chrysalis. We have doors and windows to our chrysalis. We have doors and windows to our cocoons that we can open and let other people in and allow ourselves to be seen and allow ourselves to see others. This basic truth we can forget 
because we didn't really have memories when it happened. But we can choose to remember. We can see the truth all around us. We can see that when we were children, and not just children, but babies, we know already how much love it takes to just keep us and hold us in this life. It's not a matter of being born once. We need an awful lot of connection and an awful lot of community to help us form and grow and stay in this life. That doesn't end when we stop being babies. It continues right on to this day. We won't make it in this life. I mean, we might make it through. The world might think we're successful. But to actually develop an inner life, to be able to bounce back when life gets tough, when we're not on top, this requires recognizing all the ways in which our connections really do form us and shape us. Like there's a phrase that I've said here at Wellsprings um, more times than I think I've said any phrase. I don't think I've ever said it from the pulpit here. Because very often it's said one-on-one or maybe with a couple people. And it goes like this. If you can't cry in spiritual community, then what the hell are we doing here? Because very often it's with someone who is shedding tears. Very often someone who's shedding tears. And here's the thing with like crying is like at first a lot of people will just kind of let it go and they'll be okay and it's all right to cry. And then this part of like self-consciousness will, will perk up and they kind of recognize like, oh my God, someone's seeing me cry. <laughs> That's the moment. If we can't cry in spiritual community, then what are we doing here? Because that's the moment of the realness. It's something I knew as a 24-year-old who first found his way to spiritual community when, let me, let me tick off all the things that were going wrong in my life. Um, I had a fancy new uh, graduate degree, but I couldn't get a job. Uh, my girlfriend had not just dumped me, but had left the country. Um, I was having daily anxiety attacks. I was acutely depressed. I was working on a pretty nasty addiction to alcohol. And so I found my way to a church that would take me in. The Upper East Side of Manhattan, Unitarian Church of All Souls. And what I found there, especially in the first six months when I was just licking my wounds, that they didn't ask anything of me. I could go there and I could cry. I don't even remember what I cried about. But what I found out after a few weeks is that I would look around me and I saw a whole bunch of other people who were also crying as well. And I figured it's pretty good to be here. It's pretty good to be connected. It was that reminder that my life, although it was kind of over in the form that I thought it was or was supposed to be, was not over. At this bouncing back moment, I remembered something that I heard years later from the uh, author Sebastian Younger. He said that humans don't mind hardship. What they mind is not feeling necessary. Don't feel connected. It's so easy in our society not to feel necessary, to feel cast off, you know, when we're less productive or not fully ourselves, whatever that means. This life is so hard for so many of us. And as many teachers have said, 
the only way life has any ease whatsoever is by starting from the place of recognizing how hard and difficult it is. That's the only way the ease opens up. Again, we can forget this truth. But to keep on paying attention with it, to keep on keeping on, it is to remember that this capacity makes all the difference. There's a doctor named Rachel Naomi Remen, who's one of my favorite teachers and really a healer. She's a medical doctor. Um, and when she first started her practice of medicine, it was in uh, San Francisco in the late 70s, early 80s. And she was really drawn to want to work with people who, like herself, had uncurable diseases. She had Crohn's disease. And when she found she went to talk to other medical professionals, other doctors, they were more than willing to say, here, you want to work with them? You take them. I can't do anything more with them. And they walked away. And pretty soon she found within like a couple months, she had a full practice of everyone else's discarded patients. And she recognized there wasn't any magic bullet she had. There isn't any way that she could have cured them. And so she started what she called generous listening. And what she found amazed her. That all these people living lives that other medical professionals had kind of given up on were filled with love and meaning and purpose and resilience and, yes, bouncing back. And what she found is that, in fact, the patients she was with were so much more mentally healthy than her other fellow medical professionals because they were real. And they saw a truth about this life that sometimes it can be hard to see or we don't want to see. So I mentioned when she began her practice, she was in San Francisco in the late 70s or early 80s. What was happening? And one of her medical services was as a director at a, at a hospice. And you know, people, people understand what hospice is. People, you, know, you go into hospice very often. I mean, things really have to be freaky if you're going to come out the other side of hospice, right? But this was something different. They get a whole new slate of patients on Monday. And by that Friday, all of them were dead. Young men, artists, teachers, fellow doctors. This took a tremendous toll upon the medical staff and especially the nurses. The nurses were burning out because one week after another after another, a new crop of dying young men, patients on Monday, all of them dead by Friday. Average nurse there lasted about six weeks before they quit. Now, part of Dr. Remen's job was to kind of rally the troops. <laughs> and, you know, when you're beleaguered like this, it's really difficult to do. And so one day before she had a major talk to give to them, she had a dream. And in the dream, her and the whole staff of this hospice was looking out from some distance, the city of San Francisco. And they were sending out their energy. They were sending out waves of strength and waves of compassion to the city that had so much suffering. Except in the dream, the challenge was if they took one step back, they fell into a black hole and totally disappeared. What happened in the dream next made all the difference. All those medical professionals turned towards each other. 
and started talking to each other and started supporting each other and said, you know, watch out for the hole. And so the next day when that talk happened, Dr. Remen offered this suggestion. Each Friday at the end of our working week, when all the patients we've known and have grown to love have died, let's take several hours to talk about who they were. Let's take several hours to tell their stories. Let's take several hours to unburden ourselves, to share our burdens. And wouldn't you know it, once they started that practice, turnover completely ended. That's what bouncing back is all about. So often in this life, it's not what happens. It's how we respond or how we choose to hide. How we might mask ourselves because the feeling or the thinking of our realness is that it's too painful and we can't face it. And yet what that does is it breaks us rather than giving us the strength to bounce back. The same lesson is true for all of us. It may not be as extreme as being a frontline medical professional in the early age of AIDS. But it's true for all of us as we scratch the surface and truly listen to each other, seeing how challenging this life can be. I know it because I sit in a blessed position of being open to receiving so many of your stories when life is at its most challenging. And the truth is I know how often you do that with each other. This is why spiritual but not religious is not enough. <laughs> because when we show up and we're part of spiritual community, we can actually be witnesses for each other. One of the first lessons I got after I had been ordained like six months, I was guest preaching in another congregation in Florida, like 400 miles. Florida is a really long state. You never realize until you live there. And I was guest preaching, and I even forget what I was preaching about 18 years ago. And in the receiving line, this is like one of those traditional churches where the minister stands at the back and shakes everyone's hand. I'm glad we don't do that here. But in this case, it was valuable because I could see that she was just on the verge of like a major deluge. And I said, why don't we step into the room over here, side room? And it just came pouring out. Truth is, folks, I can't even remember what it was. It may have been a cancer diagnosis of someone she loved. It may have been a failing relationship. I don't remember what it was. I don't even remember what I said. I don't know if I was any use at all. But at the end, she said this. Thank you for seeing me. Thank you for seeing me. This is our call here. To cultivate resilience by learning to see one another. Not just pass each other by. Not just move on. Not just give that shrug of the shoulders, eh, I'm okay. Well, maybe if you are, that's fine. But most often we're not when we say that. You know, we've got this series of uh, Wellsprings 1.0s coming up that I know some of you are interested in. And we give a whole bunch of great background about the values and beliefs and mission of Wellsprings and a whole sense of what animates the spiritual community. But I'm thinking I might entirely scrap that in favor of one question. Not going to do this, but I'm thinking about it. Are you willing to be a witness? Are you willing to be a witness? And by the way, 
that's not just a question for 1.0. I actually think that's the question that makes the difference in terms of the overall strength of this community, regardless of how long you've been here. Are you willing to be a witness? I hope we all are today, my friends. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of sacred sight, of seeing with the eyes of the heart what so often the world does not see or refuses to see or is too busy to see or is too afraid to see. May we show up as witnesses for those moments when we need someone to witness us so we may speak truthfully of our need, our pain, our ache. May we show up as witnesses so in those moments in which another life is challenged, we can say those simple words, I am here. We can say with our bodies, with our breath, with our attention, with our eyes, with our hearts, I see you. May we be people of sacred sight. Amen.